I'm Ed Cowan, and this is Scaling Up. You want a company to be led by ideas, not hierarchy. If you can allow teams and people to have spirited debates respectfully, you can usually form a strategy or an outcome that you wouldn't have got to just, you know, with one or two people on their own. This podcast aims to educate and inspire by telling the stories of great growth companies as told by their CEOs and founders. TDM is an Australian-based investment firm that invests globally in fast-growing public and private companies. For more insights, visit our website, tdmgrowthpartners.com. Luke Kinnear, the CEO and founder of Safety Culture, is my guest today on Scaling Up. And undoubtedly, his story is one of the great examples of Australian entrepreneurship. A boy from Townsville in northern Queensland starts a software company from his garage with no technical expertise. Now, Safety Culture is the pin-up of the Australian tech scene, a billion-dollar valuation, growing revenue at breakneck speed with tens of thousands of customers across 85 countries with some of the largest companies in the world relying on Safety Culture's software to provide safety and inspection. This is a story that is boundless in Luke's ambition and desire to do something significant. It's ingrained in a mission to build an enduring company that shapes the world. And the lessons Luke has gained from his scaling up journey is both inspiring but so deeply important for any entrepreneur to hear firsthand. Luke has a wonderful disposition, a knockabout fella, and he's just warming up when it comes to fulfilling what he set out to do. For those interested in further insights and commentary, TDM Growth Partners has been posting lots of great content lately, including a written series on what frameworks we use to assess great CEOs, CFOs, and non-executive directors. It's probably easiest just to follow at TDM underscore growth on Twitter to get all the news and views there. And you can always find me on Twitter at Eddie Cowan. Luke, welcome to scaling up. The safety culture story is one of my favorites worldwide. It's a story for the ages. In essence, the safety culture story is your story and it's a story embedded in deep ambition. And to me, it's a beacon of what can happen when ambition meets talent and opportunity. But like all founding stories, they are much better told from the mouths of those who lived and breathed them. So over to you. Yeah, thanks, Ed, and and it's nice to be here. Thanks for having me on. The safety culture story really has a couple of different parts to it, I guess. But the the initial catalyst was when I was working as a private investigator. Um, my job was to spy on people who'd been injured at work or had put an insurance claim in, and I was working for the insurance companies, sitting in the back seat of a car, uh, filming or photographing whatever those people did in a day. And it really was like my childhood dream. I get to, you know, follow people around uh, incognito. No one knows who you are. It's pretty cool. It's a fun job. But at, at some point when I was sitting in the back seat of the car, you know, daydreaming one day, waiting for someone to come out and do something, it occurred to me that I really needed people to get injured or put a claim in for me to be able to get up and go to work. That's what my job depended on. And so... I kind of felt I'm really part of the problem here. I'm not part of the solution to this. I'm, I'm relying on the problem to exist. And so when I started thinking around, you know, the two and a half thousand claims that I'd, I'd been involved in, 
I thought, you know, all of these were preventable in hindsight. Um, no one goes to work and wants to get injured and, and the whole compensation system and getting paid if you get injured, like that's not a good path for anyone. It never, it never goes well for them. And so, you know, I thought, okay, if I could help train people, um, provide some training documentation for employers, um, that would be a good place to start and help them solve this problem. And so that's, that's how safety culture originally started was providing training documents for employers. I'd pay, like former government inspectors at 800 or a thousand dollars to write a document on how to work on the roof of a building or how to dig up a road in the street. And I then take that document and sell it online as a Microsoft word document for $80, which brought the cost down for everyone. And, um, you know, I sold quite a few millions of dollars worth of, of Microsoft word docs and had a pretty good lifestyle sort of business only in the end one and a half staff. I had, 25 staff at one point that were telemarketers and then brought it all back and we ended up with just a couple of people and it was a great business. But, um, you know, I guess I got uh, restless and wanted to do more and, and it sort of goes on from there. And we'll touch on where this business goes. You were the star of a documentary called The New Hustle that really documented these founding years and, and not only your journey, but Mel at, at Canva and the Vino Mofo crowd. It's just an absolute pulsing anthem to entrepreneurship. And, and there's this quote that stands out for me and anyone that hasn't seen it, you can, you can see it on YouTube and it's just an absolute must. But if I worked for someone else, there'd be limits and I didn't want limits. Is that how you felt at the time? Yeah, I think so. I think it's been my personality. I've never been one to operate within uh, limits that you know, just put there because that's how we've always done it. I'm always one to question and have that curiosity as to why can't we do that or why can't we do more? And I think um, that always came through. And the new hustle, I guess, tells the story of, of the three founders, not just uh, Safety Culture, but Canva and Vino Mofo. And I think it's a good example of the why behind these companies and why they were started. And the director, Patrick Moreau, he wanted to tell sort of my story for a while. He'd asked me for a few years. I'd been working with him on different projects. And, um, and I used to be a videographer for Tony Robbins for years as well. So I'd, I'd done a bunch of film stuff. Even back further, I used to do stuff for Channel 9 in Sydney. And, uh, you know, I kind of um, got to a point where Cliff and Mel and myself and that were running around, you know, telling these stories when we could, but it was never reaching enough people. And um, when Patrick said, hey, I want to tell your story, I always felt funny about doing a story about us. I just thought there were much more interesting stories to tell than mine. But um, when we went to Sydney, Safety Culture had no employer brand. No one knew any, anything about Safety Culture and we were trying to hire engineers. And so we'd spent, I think, over 500 grand on, on um, recruiters in the first year we were there. And that's when it occurred to me, I thought there's a smarter way to tell this story on mass. And so I said to Patrick, all right, you can tell the story now. And so the new hustle was originally three episodes and it ended up, we crammed it back into one 53 minute episode because it became a bigger and bigger production. But um, yeah, over 400,000 people, I think have watched it now. And uh, it was um, on like in-flight TV on Qantas and all those. So it's been, um, been well received. It's been a lot of fun. Emotive, eye-opening just as I said, a, a must watch, but it's an interesting example and leads me to probably the next theme I want to explore, but this one-to-many strategy of, of attracting talent, just a fascinating way of, of taking it. But I guess as a non-technical founder, you, you've built a, a deeply technical software business and that would have its advantages and disadvantages. And I'm sure that you're acutely aware of both. 
Let's start with maybe the, the macro advantage, and that is people who live in the world of software see software as the only solution. To me, as this visionary founder, you've always seen different ways of solving problems, whether it's software, whether it's hardware, whether it's the integration of those two together. What other advantages have you found as someone who's from outside the engineering world starting a software business? Yeah, I think it's really the problem solving mindset is probably the key. And so sometimes we hear about a skill shortage and I don't believe there ever is a skill shortage. There may be temporary skill shortages, but skill shortages are never a reason to not be able to solve a problem. You can either learn the skills you need to learn or you can hire the skills that you don't have. And I think a lot of people get fixated with, you know, what they can do and their skill set today and therefore they're limited by that. And I never really had that approach. And so, um, you know, I did a bit of Python coding for a while early on and realized that's just going to take me far too long to, to figure out and, uh, and be able didn't to, want to do... dish your technical skills, but exactly. uh, like probably a non-technical founder, but compared no, to no, some... I had none. No, no, it's a fair call. I had none and still don't. But um, I think, you know, being able to get great people who could help us think really smart about solving this problem. It's a, it's a global challenge we took on. We're helping teams do their best work each day. And it's not just safety, but it's quality. It's how they deliver their product or service consistently. And I think, you know, as you go along the journey and you tell the story about what you're here to do, it brings in more people who want to help you. And then the skills come. And so for me, it wasn't a question of, you know, not having certain skills and therefore not being able to do something. It was a question of knowing what skills you do have and then making sure you find the skills that you don't have. And I think that's the key, being self-aware enough to know that there's some things we're all really good at and there's some things we just suck at. And it's important to know both, you know, where our skills fall. It relates to what we were talking about earlier with the new hustle and, and attracting talent. But how did you know, even in those early days and without a technical co-founder, not just who to employ, but at when to employ certain people as your business was growing, even in those early days? Yeah, I think it's just solving the next problem each, each step of the way. Um, I tried to build some software with people early in 2007, which was five years before I ordered it came out. We, we tried to build a training platform and it was just terrible. And then in 2010, build a document management platform and that was terrible as well. And so um, it wasn't from a lack of trying, but when I met Alan, who was an engineer that had dropped out of uni at James Cook in Townsville, um, he got it and he was, he was the right person for, for that stage of the company and has grown with the company ever since up till today. But I think, um, you know, I was a bit lucky. I met Alan who was willing to, to have a crack and have the battles that we needed to have. I think, you know, these ideas come from a back and forth. It's Steve Jobs called it the rock tumbler. The old guy down the street used to put rocks in a barrel and turn them around and they'd come out smooth. And, and I think that's the battle of ideas. You want a company to be led by ideas, not hierarchy. And I think these are the key things that um, if you can allow teams and people to have spirited debates respectfully, then um, you can usually form a strategy or an outcome that um, you wouldn't have got to just, you know, with one or two people on their own. It's something that I might touch on a bit later, but I do want to ask you, and maybe it's a good time to talk about it, you know, visionary founder, high amounts of innovation and creativity, but as you've grown, you, I'm sure there've been times when you've had to balance this innovation from a top down to actually really encourage people from that bottom up to make sure that that innovation is being fostered across the company, not just through the eyes of the founder. 
Yeah, I think that is a challenge that just gets harder as you get bigger. We're 455 people today. And I think, yeah, that's probably our number one uh, risk is you grow into a big company that stops innovating. And um, when you think of other great companies that have continued to scale, a lot of them do it through acquisition, not necessarily through innovation. And so I think it's, it's a really tough discipline. Apple did it quite well, particularly when Steve Jobs came back for his second stint. You know, Tesla do it extremely well. But there's not a lot of companies that purely just innovate. A lot of them, you know, you think of products that we use every day. Google Maps, you know, that was acquired. Siri, that was acquired when the company was called Siri. It was a couple of guys who had a voice recognition product. And so there's a time to innovate and have that throughout the whole company. And then there's probably stages where you have to acquire some of the capabilities you don't have. So the innovation part's tough, but you got to prioritize for it and go after it. And I think like professional CEOs probably struggle with that more where, you know, it's more of a conservative approach. It's, um, you know, quarterly earnings and things like that. Whereas founders are probably more likely to take bigger risks and, and go after things that may spectacularly fail. And um, that's part of innovation. So, yeah. And as you've grown, increasingly, there's always going to be more professional leaders rather than startup style people in your organization. And that's probably something that you've had to balance as well. Yeah, I think so. You, you need different skills for different stages and um, maintaining that balance where you can run fast and have a flat structure where people can be empowered to, to be able to move is the key. I think that's one of the things that large corporates struggle with because there's so much red tape. And so maintaining a fairly flat structure, having small teams empowered to go and execute is, I think, the ideal. But, um, yeah, it's tricky. You've got a lot of people, a lot of dependencies, and um, it's, a, it's a daily battle. I think that's probably the battle that I have today, more so back in the early days, it was a battle of an idea about should we do it this way, should we do it that way. Now it's more a battle between removing the obstacles, removing the barriers so that people can run and, um, and execute on not only the company vision, but their vision that they've developed within it. Well said. I know we've been jumping around a bit here, so I'll try and get us back on track. Maybe just to round out the founding story, you can let your guard down a little bit here. I'm sure there have been a whole bunch of pinch me moments, this idea through inception to scale you know, you're now servicing some of the biggest companies in the world, doing critical jobs for them across every Amazon warehouse, for instance. How does that feel? What are, maybe you can give an insight into the emotion of, of what you experience sometimes on a daily basis. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I don't probably experience the, I guess, the magnitude of what you just described. I'm just focused on the next thing that we're going to do. But um, it is nice. You look back and you reflect. I think, um, you know, three months in, I think we had a goal to get 10,000 downloads in the first year because the first app that Alan and I made got about 70 downloads in three months. And so we went, let's set a crazy goal, 10,000 in a year. And we got that in a matter of weeks. And then three months in an airline in South America told us that, you know, an update had broken the part of the app and they could have all their planes grounded. That was kind of a moment. Um, getting the first funding, you know, I met these Two guys through Blackbird, Scott Farquhar and Mike Cannon-Brooks, they, they interviewed me for the investment because they were the main investors in the original Blackbird fund. And I didn't know who these guys were. I didn't know what venture capital was. And all of a sudden, you know, I started thinking, well, I think we're meeting some pretty interesting people here that uh, probably know a whole lot more about this stuff than, than I do. So, you know, that's the sort of moment where you, you think, wow, this is actually perhaps starting to become something. And, 
and you start seeing the belief in other people's eyes as well around you where they're looking at you going, no, no, this is, this is real. We're under something. And so I think, you know, it's been a handful of those moments where you go through an experience and you come out the other side and you look at each other and you say, wow, you know, this is pretty special. I I don't know that we're going to be able to repeat all of this too easily. And so, you know, that's happened. I think the biggest one was probably this year when, we allowed the employees to participate in, in the funding round for the first time and sell down the stock. Anyone had been with us for three years or more could sell. And, um, you know, just the messages and the, and the photos and things of people hugging their families and, and sharing the news with their, their children and stuff that mum and dad will never have to owe the bank money again and things like that, like life-changing amounts of money for people. That's probably the, the, the proudest part, I think, because um, you've got to take people on the journey and it's a long journey. So, not everybody can can go the full distance, but there's a core team of people who have been there from the beginning. And um, and then we add people every year that um, are, will be the people, I think, that we look back a few years from now and say, wow, they've really had a massive impact. So it's, um, yeah, there's lots of those moments for sure, Ed. I can see the smile on your face talking about the, the liquidity that you provided for those employees. I think it's worth sort of segueing into you know, the business model itself and, and the business that you've scaled. Because for mine, if you were to ever build a SaaS business, you'd build it the way that you built it. You know, the product-led growth that was highly scalable well before the term product-led growth was, was even kind of bandied around the, the investment world. You had no marketing team. Everything was inbound, you know, really up until recently. And this kind of playbook that we've seen play out through Atlassian and HubSpot the consumerization of B2B software, mobile first. Is this how you thought it would play out? Or as you've kind of alluded, as every problem has kind of come up, there've been little pivots at moments in time. Because as I said, if you were to ever do it from scratch, this is how you do it. Yeah, I think looking back, it's easy to join the dots. You can say, oh, well, that's obviously the way to do it. But uh, you know, when we started, we were a free app with no paid product. It was just a case of let's see if people would actually use this thing. And once people started using iAuditor, then it was a case of, okay, how do we get money back for this? Like we're going to have to come up with a way. And so, you know, it was $7 one time through the app store and you could unlock the Microsoft Word report feature. So instead of a PDF, you got a Word doc and you could then manipulate it. And they pay $7. We didn't know who they were because they buy it through the app store. So when people say to you, who was the very first customer? I say, I have no idea because it was through the app store. But um, that was it. And then people would lose their device and say, where's all this backed up to? Where's your cloud? And we would say, uh, yeah, we don't have a cloud. And so, you know, then, then 12 months later, we had a cloud and uh, it was $5 a month then and you could back up your data to the cloud. And then people started working as a team and all of a sudden we needed to, to give people the ability to access, you know, as a team. And then people wanted to pull information out, so they needed an API. And so, you know, you kind of look back now, you can say, well, that's how you do it. But I think what we probably got right was this freemium model that you can give people value without asking anything in return. And so... I think that's the key. You build a free user base that really love your product and they enjoy it. And then you give them opportunities to be able to get even more value and pay a relatively low price point. And I think that's the model that's changed from enterprise software where you pay for the pilot. It costs you, you know, $50,000 and it will run for three months. And then our sales team will crunch you at the end of it and then get you to pay us a lot more money because we've proven the value to you. Like, that old model, I think, has been replaced with this widely distributed capability, thanks to the App Store. You can put a product in there 
and it can be downloaded millions of times and you don't have to do anything. You're not even paying for the service. So I think, um, you know, that's what changed everything. And um, that's what allowed us to then build out that freemium model. And I think today we're going to pull it back again. We've probably gone a bit far in regards to building out an inside sales team. We now do have that capability, but people are downloading the app now and getting a phone call within a couple of hours to see if they want to pay for it. And so we've probably gone, we've over-optimized. I think that's a lesson for us at the moment is, is you need to preserve that freemium funnel and continue to give people great value and don't, don't cherry pick too early in the funnel process. If there ever a wise word for founders listening, I think that is it. And now where you're at, I imagine the vision has become so much clearer from the freemium I order to the land and expand into education, training, sensors. How did that crystallize as you grow as a business? Well, there's over 600 million checks a year done with iAuditor. So every time someone physically goes and looks at something in their workplace that they want to know if it's okay or not, that happens about 600 million times a year. As we started looking at what people were checking, uh, we could see things like fridge temperature coming up multiple times a day. And so in a supermarket, people would walk up to the fridge and they would record the temperature of the, of the fridge. And we've now started to say, well, we can probably automate that for you. Like instead of someone walking up and taking that recording, they're not actually doing anything other than reading it. We can probably read it for you and then just tell you on your phone when there's a problem. And so that's how we ended up with the the hardware sensors for temperature and humidity. So anywhere that people store food, they have a responsibility to make sure that they're stored within certain parameters in each part of the world. And so we're now going further down that path of automating it. But to, to simplify it, there's only three questions that we really answer for all our customers. And the first question is, what's working well across my team? The second question is, what's not working well? And the third question is, what do I need to do about it? So everything that we do just comes back to those three questions. And our customers are distributed teams. They're these teams that are working all around the world. And we're helping them answer those three questions every day. You're listening to Scaling Up with Ed Cowan, a podcast brought to you by TDM Growth Partners. Visit the website tdmgrowthpartners.com or for interesting insights and commentary, follow us on Twitter at TDM underscore growth. When you think about growing your business and and growth generally, as you you mentioned before, there has been some venture capital into your business, but you've, you've had a very conservative cash burn highly capital efficient model which has helped but how have you thought about balancing growth and fueling the flames of growth as opposed to making sure that you are still optimizing the efficiency of the business yeah look i I, that's probably just a reflection of myself more than anyone in going a bit slower than perhaps we could have like we're a couple of kids in a garage in townsville and then you've got blackbird and mike cannon brooks and scott barker and these people leaning in saying hey we want to help you And so, you know, we went and got an office and we hired 30 people in three months and that was completely chaotic and no one knew what they were doing. And so we've had to go through all those pains. Maybe if this was the second time around or something, um, we would have been able to do it faster. But I've always maintained the mantra that we need to work with great people that we really enjoy spending time with and, and can learn from. And to only ever raise as much capital as we can deploy, reasonably deploy, just stockpiling a heap of cash was never really um, the approach. And so I think just my background in sort of small business was one where 
you just ran things fairly efficiently. And we've tried to maintain that, I think, as we've built the business. But I think now's the time. As we get more and more experience in the team, we can place bigger bets. We've got a customer summit, which is open to the public in November. Um, the keynote speakers are Aaron Brockovich, Captain Sully, who landed on the Hudson, Scott Kelly, who lived on the space station for a year, talking about loneliness and those sorts of things. Uh, John McAvoy, who was an armed robber from the UK and now is a Nike-sponsored triathlete. Like just phenomenal people. And we've been able to now go after these these bigger plays like this is the opportunity now as bad as COVID's been it's it's been a time for us where our products are needed more than ever and so I think you'll see us as you say put a bit more fuel on that fire now and um, and go after the the global opportunity that's in front of us much bigger than we ever had before and um, and that's exciting. There's not a business in my mind that potentially isn't a safety culture customer And so it feels like, as you say, the growth opportunity is wide open for you. But how do you think about the competitive advantage of the business, not only now, but how that's growing into this massive growth opportunity for you? Yeah, it's interesting. We we come up against um, other people like us, I guess, who have built an app that solves a problem well. Um, and then you get large enterprise software companies that are trying to, you know, provide a mobile first experience, which they're terrible at. And so we have competition in different areas, but I think the biggest fundamental difference has been the approach we've had to solving this problem. Workplace health and safety is how we started. So that's a pretty boring subject. No one really leaves school and says, I'm going to build the next workplace health and safety app. Like they want to build the next dating app or they want to build the next Minecraft or Fortnite. And so, you know, most of your competition goes a different path right there. And then the second point is when someone actually does get excited about not just safety, but quality and, and other sexy subjects that are equally as popular at, at nighttime on the pillow when people talk about it, they think about building compliance software and they look at the legislation and they say, all right, we're going to build software that makes everybody compliant. And we just never took that approach because I felt that that was not good enough. I thought the best practice is way better than, than compliance and what the law says. And that's just boring. Like if you're going to build shit software, if your goal is to be compliant. And so it's like, how do you build software that people really love to use that they want to pick up and do their jobs better each day. And I think if you can achieve that, then you'll achieve a standard way higher than just the legal requirement. And that's where most people, I guess, went on a different path. They, they go after the money because if you promise an employer, you can make them compliant, they'll pay you lots of money for it. And I just didn't want to build crap software. Let's pivot slightly to your own leadership journey from you know, being a sole founder, which is a very different experience to, to many who share that. And, and maybe we can talk of the loneliness that I'm sure you've had at times as a single founder, but maybe a good place to start is how do you filter advice? Because as now a Aussie unicorn, everyone wants a piece of you, whether it's bankers, other founders, either giving you advice or you giving that advice, annoying investors, perhaps, how do you filter through that advice to make sure that you're, you're only taking on what really counts? It's like a trip to the shops where you put a bunch of stuff in your trolley and you leave a heap on the shelf. And when you walk out, you don't worry about what you left behind. In other words, I think you, you find what resonates for you. And the other thing is always understand the limitation of the advice you're getting. So you ask yourself, what is this person really good at better than the rest? And what are they not good at? And, and let's make sure that you're taking the advice from the bucket where they're better than the rest. And I think that's the key. Everybody has limitations, whether it's Michael Jordan or Bill Gates or whoever your models are, 
there's things that they just don't do well that you might even be way better than them at. And you want to understand, I think, what that is. And don't just take the advice because they're successful, but you take the advice because you can calibrate it and apply it. And I think um, that's why Scott Farquhar probably put so much time into helping me um, develop the business and, and myself over the years was because, you know, I could have said, oh, let's meet every week or whatever, but I never did. I never, ever had any schedule to meet him. Sometimes we'd talk three times in a week and sometimes we wouldn't talk for a couple of months because I was applying the advice. You know, when you think about mentors, usually there's nothing much in it for them other than the satisfaction of seeing you do well. And so I think as a mentoree, your job is to go and apply that advice and don't go and ask for more until you've applied it and then go back. And the reward for the mentor is that, hey, look what I've done. Here's what I did. And your advice either worked great or no, I had some problems. I've had to, had to modify it. But that's kind of the key, I think. You beat me to the punchline because I was going to ask about Scott next and, and just the power of that mentor relationship with one of Australia's greatest ever founders. How have you found that relationship in terms of the importance of having a quality operator, someone who's in the weeds, as he's been for you know over a decade now, helping you on your journey? Uh, it's been invaluable is how I'd describe it. To have someone that is further along on, on the journey, who's actually built a business and a really successful one, the advice is so specific and relevant. And it's much easier to apply than theories or second or third hand stories that, that people tell you haven't experienced it. And they can ask you better questions and they can give you better answers. Yeah, you know, I can remember Scott said to me when I was about 30 people and it was getting a bit chaotic, he said, you need a HR person by 65. About 60 people, I'm like, the wheels are completely falling off here. And, uh, and yep, we need someone to help with HR. And so, you know, he would kind of preempt Here's what's coming for you. You probably can't see it right now, but assure me, this is what's coming. You're going 100 Ks down the highway, the things come pretty quickly the other way. Exactly. And so, you know, he could preempt what was coming and, um, and just help me start thinking about solving these problems before I landed smack bang in the middle of them. And sometimes I still manage to just land in the middle of them, but uh, <laughs> he'd be there for the other phone call then. I think that's the nature of what you're trying to do. Maybe we can touch on your experience as a as a sole founder and how you've you've managed that. And that maybe that is why you have you know, forged such a wonderful relationship with Scott. There hasn't been that person by your side from the start to intertwine your own you know culture and values or bounce ideas off. How have you found that as a as a sole founder? It's an interesting question because the immediate answer is, oh, I wish I had a co-founder. It would be much easier. And then I talk to co-founders and, you know, sometimes they split up and, you know, have challenges and things. So I think there's, there's pros and cons for both. Um, I probably spend more time wishing I had a co-founder than enjoying the fact that I don't, but um, it is what it is. And like Alan, who still is with us today, never wanted to take on any management responsibilities. Um, nor would he probably be good at it just as I'm not good at coding. And so, you know, we would joke around and whenever I'm dealing with a staff issue or something, he would say, you know, hashtag CEO life, all the best. And, uh, you know, I joke that he could do my job for a day and I'd try and do his, but, you know, I think um, it is what it is. You just got to make the most of it. And um, Al's good at what he does. He's, he never wanted to, to take on people and managing all that stuff. And um, I had some experience with it. So, um, that's just the way it unfolded. And um, 
and here we are. So, you know, I, I don't really dwell on it, but it is, it is lonely. It's tough. It's all those things, but it's also hard for people with co-founders. So, you know, I don't know that I can sit here and, and have a bit of a cry about it. I think we just got to crack on. I love your grit and your optimism. Every time we talk, one of your great strengths is, is transparency. And so I'm sure you won't have any issue me asking this, but I'm sure there've been a variety of mistakes that you've made from people mistakes to business model mistakes that you've had to unwind or change quickly. Can you share some of them and maybe the lessons that you've learned from them? Yeah, there's been like twice where I've had people who are fantastic individual contributors who I've allowed to just build a team and run because they're great. And then we've been caught out where, you know, they've got a team of 10 or 12 and all of a sudden they're not great leaders necessarily and the team's not getting what they need from them and it's kind of imploding around them. And I've felt responsible for that because I, I set them up for that. I allowed them to do that. And so that kind of taught me, it's happened twice, you know, since we started. And, and um, it's taught me that you need to provide, you know, the empowerment for people to be able to, to make great decisions and move. But you also need to provide some guardrails and understand the limitations because if people are really enthusiastic and they are excited and they want to run, that's fantastic. But if they end up running through fire that's so bad that they end up scarred and burnt from it, then it can affect their ability to be a great contributor. And so I've seen that happen a couple of times and and now I, I really think hard about how do you provide the guardrails that people need without, you know, restricting their impact? And so I think that's something that I've kind of learned and, and would call a couple of mistakes. Other mistakes, uh, I underestimated the importance of the employer brand when we moved to Sydney. Um, we couldn't get enough engineers in Townsville and so I started in Sydney and I was too slow. It took me a year to probably catch up because we'd, I saw what we'd spent on recruiters. We had someone who was leading talent and hiring and they were just going bananas without any real guardrails. And, you know, we went from 85 people to 320 in 18 months at one point. And um, it was just too much, too fast. And it took the best part of a year to unravel that actually. We'd never really fired people before or lost people but it got to a point where I had customers contacting me on LinkedIn saying I've used your product for five years and it's awesome but I've just lost the last three hours of my life to your support team and it was terrible and you know no founder ever wants to hear that and so I was starting to get anecdotal feedback from all different places that things just weren't quite right and so when I dug in you know I remember ringing our support line and the person who answered the phone couldn't pronounce my name. And that's our own support line. I rang our number and said, I'm Luke Ania and I needed to speak to their manager, which I said their name. And they were like, who, who are you? I'm like, I'm Luke, the CEO, safety coach of the company you work for. And they still, and I'm like, if this is what happens to me, what the hell happens to our customers? And so there was a period there where the wheels fell off a bit because we grew too quick. And I think there's people out there now who, who probably run around and claim credit because they were here with us for a while saying, oh, I built this awesome team. It's like, no, we had to fix up a lot of your shit when you left. And so, you know, it took a while to fix that up. And, uh, and we had, you know, tough conversations. We had people in leadership roles that, that didn't have the experience. And so it took probably a year after that period. That was probably the biggest mistake and, and cost of the experience where, you know, we said, let's find the people who are really great at what they do and support them and find the people who are struggling. And if we can't get them to be great, then find them a job elsewhere because we're just given so many people jobs. They were just turning up and getting jobs. And um, 
and that took a bit to sort out. So that was probably the biggest one, actually. And once we got on the other side of that, it, we had a, a team that was better than ever. It's been amazing. Yeah, scaling people and culture is is probably the hardest thing that you'll do as a founder. And, and there are always those certain limits as you're growing that you need to smash through. And it's the people that will enable that. But as you said, I think we're all just uh, people businesses masquerading as technology companies. Well said. Uh, you know, you know my belief on that. Maybe we can touch on on COVID and the impact it's had on your business. As you said, it's provided huge tailwinds. Every business more than ever needs your software, but I'm probably more interested in the impact it's had on the people inside the building. You were fostering a wonderful culture in, in the main office down in Surrey Hills in Australia, and you've got offices around the world, Kansas City amongst them. Everyone's now dispersed and working from home. How has it affected your teams, how they collaborate, how they work together? Are you seeing any cracks appear? Uh, little, little ones here and there. Um, nothing significant yet, but a couple of things. I think when people first started working from home, it was a bit novel, and you know, everybody's like, okay, we're now adapting to this, and and people were taking it in their stride and doing their best with it, trying to set up home. And then there was the kind of realization that shit, I'm actually working at home all day, every day. Some team members had kids at home as well because schools were shut. And that was pretty tough on people. And then we kind of got to this point after that first wave where things relaxed a bit. And I think people were in a routine then. We talked a lot with the team about having great daily habits. Uh, We brought in speakers to talk about resilience and overcoming adversity and tried to prepare people, particularly the younger team members, that this could go on for a while. And if you keep thinking next week, next week, it'll be over, that can become quite fatiguing. And so we sort of pre-framed it and said, look, we think this is going to be a minimum six months and we'll reassess later in the year. And then we reset it again and said, no, it's going to be longer. And so I think um, that helped us quite a bit in terms of getting through it. But I think we're now starting to see, and we've got Sydney offices open again, uh, Townsville offices open, the, the US, UK and Manila offices are still closed. But we're starting to see the lack of mentorship and day-to-day coaching that happens when you're all in the one building and you pass each other or you can see by someone's body language, they're a bit down. Hey, what's happening? How are you feeling? Well, you don't necessarily see all that on a Zoom call. And so I think we're starting to probably now go into that phase of this where we really need to to talk about how people can get that coaching and mentoring, get the support and just also the, the emotional support that um, is needed to get through this part of it. But um, overall, it's been been fairly good. I think um, everyone's managed really well, but um, we're ready to have people back in the offices and um, that may still take a little while for some of these offices. And then intertwined with all of this is you've completed your maiden acquisition with EdApp. How's that integration culturally going to take shape if, if potentially, as you say, people are still working from home or in and out of the office? And, and I guess the overarching question is just around acquisition and cultural fit. How do two businesses in your mind come together and, and make sure that they're still moving towards the same North Star? Yeah, I think they're coming together really well. Um, Darren is a fantastic founder and, and leader and someone that I've just had a lot of respect for in, in the two and a half years I've known him and we've got along very well. We're both very straightforward people and, and have a common goal. So he wants to democratise training and make it accessible to everyone in the world. That's also part of the vision that I laid out and what we need to do. So it, it wasn't a big leap for us and it was kind of a natural coming together, I think. We didn't start out with the intention to acquire 
ed app i just started out to to help another founder who i thought was doing a great job and um if that was advice or mentoring or whatever then then i was prepared to give it and when he said he needed some funding i was like well we can probably do it for if you want to and that kind of made it interesting because they hadn't had vc funding and if, if they'd taken vc funding it probably would have set them on a different path but because it was founder to founder we could figure out what worked best for us instead of what worked best for an investor who's sitting across the other side of the table. And so it's been a really interesting journey, but something that's, that I think has been very organic. And um, the teams are working together on projects and, and um, as uh, you know, we integrate the product, people are spending more and more time together. But there's a genuine excitement on both, from both sides. And we've, we've really worked hard to try and bring the best from both cultures and bring that together and make it a very much an inclusive feeling rather than a us and them type feeling and that sort of thing. So we've been quite deliberate and conscious about bringing the culture together as one. And at the same time, making it clear that we're here to support their original vision and goal to democratize training and, and make it available to all workers in the world. So it's a really good fit for us. Let's round this out for a boy that grew up in Townsville has started this wonderful business. What's the advice if you could turn back the clocks and give one piece of advice to, to Luca near circa 15 years ago, what would it be? Don't worry too much. It'll, it'll work out one way or the other. I've probably spent far too many hours and sleepless nights stressing and worrying and using fear to serve you is kind of one of the skills you want to develop early. Fear is great. Fear is powerful because it tells you what can go wrong and you want to know that. So I think learning to use fear as your friend and acknowledging it and then making a decision and moving forward is the key. Because I think when you become fearful of everything's not working and holy shit, I don't know what to do, you kind of need someone in your ear to say, it's going to be okay. One way or the other, this will be okay. You're either going to completely fuck it all up and you'll learn from it and you'll be better for it. Um, life will still be okay. Or it's not going to be as bad as what you think right now and uh, you'll figure it out. But I think there's just too much time spent worrying early on. And I think a lot of founders, you see the stress in their eyes, turn that into positive stress rather than negative stress is probably the advice I'd give them. It's wonderful advice. Uh, you're talking to someone who spent many a sleepless night tossing and turning, uh, wondering what was going to happen the next day. And, and you do come to the conclusion that the only thing you can't control is time. Tomorrow will happen. And you're going to have to turn up and, and perform at your absolute best on that given day. So I completely agree with you. Mate, it's been a, a pleasure. Every time we, we talk, I tend to laugh a lot. I tend to learn a lot. And today was, was no exception. Thanks for your time, Luke. Thanks, Ed. Nice to talk to you. See you, mate.